From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, June 7th. I'm Marco Werman. The U.S. condemns the latest massacre in Syria. Witnesses describe a horrific scene. When people walked into these villages and looked at what had happened, they were looking at a a death toll in the scores with no survivors. Evidence points to pro-government militias. We'll hear more about who they are and how they operate. And later, the Mexican jockey poised to make triple crown history. He was born to be a jockey. He's got great hands, and he has a great sense of timing. He's gifted. Those stories ahead. First, news. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The United States today condemned the latest massacre in Syria. A White House statement said President Bashar al-Assad's continued abdication of responsibility for such horrific acts has no credibility. Activists say the new massacre happened yesterday in a rural area near the city of Hama. Dozens of men, women, and children were reportedly killed by guns, knives, and fire. What happened cannot yet be independently verified, but Martin Chulov has spoken to several witnesses. He's the Beirut correspondent for Britain's Guardian newspaper. The three witnesses that we've spoken to today say they saw the regime forces, which were led by civilian militiamen, enter this area at around 2 p.m. There was a 30-minute period of shelling, followed by intense gunfire. Then, Then there was a lull for about an hour or so, another burst of fire. And then that was it. And when people walked into these villages, this village of Al-Kabir in particular, and looked at what had happened, they were looking at a a death toll in the scores with with no survivors. So you say shelling as well. Does that imply that the government was involved? This isn't just uh, militias or paramilitary? It has eerie similarities to what we saw in the village of Hula two weeks ago. That too was led by Shell 5. In Hula as in Al-Kabir, so it appears militiamen did follow the regime forces in or the regime artillery and finished the job that tanks had started. Regardless of who did this, why was it uh, carried out? It's an interesting question. It's something that's drawn much speculation today. Could have been an attempt to create some kind of sectarian tension or perhaps, as one theory is, to force the Sunnis out of this part of Syria so the Alawites can then have a, a stretch of land going from Damascus straight through to Latakia on the coast, and that could be the hub of any future safe haven within Syria for them. Now, with that first massacre in Hula a couple of weeks ago, UN monitors were able to get there really quickly. Has there been any independent verification of this latest incident in uh, Kabir? There hasn't as yet. The UN monitors have tried to get into Al Kabir all day. They haven't been able to do so. Uh, General Robert Mood, who was the head of the UN special mission in Syria, said that UN monitors were turned back by regime checkpoints. Ban Ki-moon has told the UN General Assembly this afternoon that some of those monitors tried to get back into town later in the afternoon and came under small arms fire. 
Now, uh, Assad denied any involvement or responsibility for the Hula massacre, despite all the evidence to the contrary. What, what is the official line from the government about this latest uh, atrocity? The line is the same. This wasn't us, and this is terrorist groups who somehow managed to outmaneuver the Syrian army, um, enter villages, shell things, kill people, and then run away without any trace. So it's not a plausible scenario. It certainly wasn't in Hula. Uh, the villagers that we've spoken to today say they recognised some of these militiamen. They went to school with them. They knew who they were. They knew where they came from. They say there are no al-Qaeda in this area. The only people committing any of these sorts of acts are regime forces. So President Assad does retain the support of certain sections of Syrian society. Are, are, are you able to gauge, uh, Martin, whether these extreme scenes of violence, like the ones in Hula and the one in Kabir, are, are frittering away any support for Assad? They certainly seem to be taking a toll within the Sunni majority who, who make up about 70 to 75 percent of Syria's population and large numbers of the armed forces. Since Hula, we have seen a steady increase in defections. These defections are almost exclusively Sunni. The Alawite sect and the Christian minority, which account for around 20 percent of Syria's population, they are staying pretty solid for the time being. They do seem to be buying this line that the Syrian regime will protect minorities and without the regime that they will be exposed. So there does seem to be a ground shift within the Sunni ranks of the armed forces. It, it's not massive, but it is a steady increase in defections. Martin Shulov with The Guardian newspaper in Beirut. Thank you very much. You're welcome. David Lesh teaches Middle East history at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. He's met with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad on numerous occasions over the years as part of research for his books about Syria. His latest book is Syria, the Fall of the House of Assad, which is coming out in August. So, David, we're hearing a lot about the Shabiha, a uh, militia group tied to the Assad government. So they're said to be behind the latest mass killings in central Hama province. Tell us who the Shabiha are. Well, the Shabiha, the word itself in Arabic means ghost. So they are, you know, people and individuals that are are not necessarily seen and uh, and hide behind the scenes. And these are irregular units of civilian militia, maybe even paramilitary units, who fanatically support the regime, who have carried out reportedly gruesome atrocities uh, during the uprising against uh, opponents of the regime with with the regime basically turning the other direction because they don't mind at all the, the level of fear that the Shabiha are instilling. And the, the word itself goes back to the 1980s, and they're mostly composed of Alawites in northwestern Syria who were engaged in a, in a realm of uh, criminal activities such as extortion connected to smuggling goods across the Lebanese border. And it seems to be that many of these Alawites, uh, many of them poor, are involved in these activities just to get some sort of salary. Mm. Uh, but they're also fighting from their perspective for their own survival out of the fear that extremist Sunni elements would wipe them out if the Assad regime falls. And, of course, the Assad regime's propaganda is saying that exact same thing and, and therefore encouraging the alliance in support of the Shabiha. Mm. So you, you say they fanatically support the regime of Assad, but how closely tied to the Assad government are they? That's a little bit murky. You know, there was a I think there's loose coordination at best. There were stories uh, emerging uh, last year during the early parts of the uprising of Syrian individuals in certain cities. They would get interrogated first by the military, then by intelligence units, and then by the Shabiha, with the interrogation intensifying and, getting, and the people getting more roughed up with each succeeding interrogation. And so that suggests that there's not much coordination, and they appear to be 
tied to certain elements within the security apparatus and also to certain Sunni and Alawite businessmen who have reportedly taken care of most of the, the payments or salaries of the Shabiha. In other words, they're not necessarily on government payroll, mm. but these alliances between the business community and these paramilitary units go back uh, a long time. And perhaps these particular businessmen, again, Sunni and Alawite, are looking to protect their own privileged business access by employing these elements to support the government efforts to stay in power because their socioeconomic positions and status are based on the regime staying in power. Has the Shabiha been established this way by the Syrian government to assume that plausible deniability, or is it truly a grassroots militia? I think it's more so a grassroots militia that has been encouraged and obviously allowed to exist uh, by the government. And, and therefore, you know, again, they allow the government uh, uh, that plausible deniability, but also things could get out of control, which is, I think, what happened at Hala recently with the massacre. You know, the military did its thing, which caused enough uh, civilian casualties. But I think the Shabiha followed upon that with the most gruesome activities and the execution-style killings of, of children and, and other people. And so those excesses could get the regime in trouble because they do not control the data activities of, uh, of these groups. And therefore, these excesses could generate the humanitarian and moral outrage in the international community that could galvanize international military intervention, which the regime obviously does not want. Now, earlier today on the BBC, former British ambassador to Syria, Andrew Green, said people like Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and Special Envoy Kofi Annan were barking up the wrong tree by putting pressure on Bashar al-Assad. Let's hear what he had to say. He does not run Syria. He never has. He has been something of a figurehead, in my view. This is about a tough bunch of Alawites who have run the military and the secret police for 40 years, who now feel that they are threatened, as they certainly are, and they will fight to the last. Uh, David Lesh, do you agree with that comment? No, I don't. I think uh, Bashar al-Assad is definitely in control of uh, the Syrian regime and of their policies. I think uh, a while back uh, he bought into the system, so to speak, uh, that system being a leeway, a certain independence given to the military security apparatus to maintain the regime in power and to get rid of, if not exterminate, domestic threats to the regime uh, as well as external enemies that operate through domestic elements. And, uh, you know, from my perspective, the security solution aspect of the government uh, crackdown of the uprising was a push-button convulsive response. It's a systemic response that Bashar agreed to, that Bashar oversaw, because in order to succeed in the system, he had to conform to it. And I saw this personally over the years, where he bought into the idea of regime maintenance. So in, in one sense, the British diplomat is uh, correct in saying that the military security apparatus is prominent. It certainly is. But Bashar al-Assad has allowed that. And he has uh, overseen it and he has countenanced uh, their actions because he believes, I really truly believe, that he thinks that the well-being of the country is synonymous with his well-being. And therefore, the military security apparatus is just following through on the overall parameters of the policy that he laid down. You've met with Assad several times. How does uh, he actually address this control of power issue? Is he defensive at all? He is. I asked him specifically about this issue on, on several occasions. And while he will admit that uh, the security apparatus has engaged in excesses from time to time, he also, on the flip side, says that uh, you know, Syria is in a dangerous neighborhood. And the security apparatus and, and its offsuits, such as the Shabiha, perhaps, are necessary evils in order to 
exist and survive in a very, very tough neighborhood. So, you know, that was always the question. If, if the regional international environment becomes more friendly, would he rein in the security state? Uh, would he implement the changes to make uh, Syria much more pluralistic and democratic? But it seems that we never got to that point. And uh, they always certainly had the excuse that there were security threats all around. And, and it's a very paranoid regime to begin with. So they always have that at their ready disposal in order to implement and use the military security apparatus. Have you, David Lesh, in your meetings with Assad, uh, noticed perhaps a, an evolution of his thinking when it comes to his power in Syria? I mean, is there kind of a before and after Assad? Yeah, and for me, it was when I saw him uh, during the 2007 referendum when he was, quote unquote, reelected for another seven year term. And I met with him and amid all the pomp and circumstance, which he had eschewed up until that point in terms of support for him and, and outpouring of, of uh, love and fanaticism in terms of uh, supporting him. And, you know, he had a very emotional, almost cathartic moment with me in the sense that he believed it all. You know, before that time, I always thought he took it with a grain of salt. After that time, I think uh, you could say that he had uh, drunk the Kool-Aid of, of power. At that moment, I remember thinking he's going to be president for life. You know, no longer is he the, the humble, self-deprecating you know, ruler who accidentally became the president of, of Syria. This is someone who had bought into the whole idea, who was much more comfortable with power, and uh, I think was starting to believe all the propaganda surrounding him and all the sycophants who were praising him on a daily basis, which is, which is human nature. You know, even the most benevolent of, of dictators, I think, fall into that trap, that aphrodisiac of, of power and authoritarianism that leads them in a direction away from where they originally wanted to go. David Lesh, author of the upcoming book, Syria, The Fall of the House of Assad. It's published by Yale University Press and comes out in August. David, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Tomorrow, a different perspective on Syria from Tawakul Karman. She's the Nobel Peace Prize winner from Yemen. And the determination that had her protesting last year in the streets of Yemen's capital, Sana'a, it also informs her view of what's happening now in Syria. Syria, people, they are suffering, they are dying every day. But... Will the peaceful revolution in Syria will fail? No, they will succeed. Nobel laureate Tawakul Karman, she'll be on the program tomorrow. You're listening to The World from PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. I'll Have Another is poised to make horse racing history on Saturday. The bookmakers list the three-year-old colt as the odds-on favorite to win the Belmont Stakes. That would complete a triple crown sweep after victories in the Kentucky Derby and Preakness Stakes. No horse has done that since affirmed in 1978. The man hoping to ride I'll Have Another into the history books is Mexican-born jockey Mario Gutierrez. The world's Andrea Crossan has a story of the man they call Super Mario. You could say that Mario Gutierrez is, in a way, a thoroughbred. The 25-year-old has spent his life working with horses. His father was a jockey. By the age of 14, Gutierrez was racing quarter horses in his hometown of Veracruz and in Mexico City. And by 19, he left his family in Mexico to move to Vancouver, Canada, to be a professional jockey. 
and success came quickly to Gutierrez. His first season at Vancouver's Hastings Park racetrack, he won 91 races, and he became known over the years as a hot young talent. He rode several hundred winners for me. That's Glenn Todd. He owns horses that race at Hastings Park. He is also a friend and mentor to Gutierrez. You know, it's like the story of the fellow that sat down that's deaf and dumb by a piano and played Mozart. He was born to be a jockey. He really was. He sits a horse properly. He's got great hands. And he has a great sense of timing. He's gifted. Winning became the norm for Mario Gutierrez. He won consecutive jockey titles at Hastings Park in 2007 and 2008. His successes were celebrated by horse racing fans in Vancouver, and as Gutierrez told one Spanish-language interviewer, also by his family in Mexico. Yeah, they're very happy, very happy for everything that's happening in my life. Because just eight or nine years ago, we didn't even dream of being here, of my mom having her own house. None of that was possible. I come from a really small town. Gutierrez was sending money home to his family in Mexico. But according to Glenn Todd, his young protege was also having more than his share of fun in Vancouver. He was starting to get money and he was starting to get friends that maybe he shouldn't. And and I really liked the kid and I didn't want to see that kind of talent go the wrong direction. It's a familiar story, a talented athlete with too much too soon. Glenn Todd wanted to keep Gutierrez on the right track, so he asked the young jockey to move in with his family. I took him in and I treated him like my own son and gave him what for when he needed it and praised him when he did things right and kept him on the straight and narrow. Today, Gutierrez calls Todd his second father. The young Mexican jockey has come a long way since his early days at Hastings Park. He doesn't race there very often anymore, and his recent wins may mark the end of his time at Vancouver's small, well-worn track. As in many places, interest in horse racing in Vancouver has waned in recent years. The corporation that owns Vancouver's race course has said that it may soon have to shut its doors. But there were big crowds at the Hastings race course to watch the live TV broadcast of the Preakness Stakes last month. Oh, have another on the outside! Oh, have another! Bowie Meister, photo finish! Oh, have another! In Baltimore! Oh, have another at Pimlico! Gutierrez and I'll Have Another are now on the brink of making history. The last jockey to win the Triple Crown was Steve Cawthon, riding affirmed in 1978. For Gutierrez, it's a lot to take in. That's the dream of all jockeys. All of us want to get there one day. And me too, I thought, wow, maybe one day I can ride there. But I never dreamed it would all happen so fast. Mentor Glenn Todd will be proud of Mario Gutierrez, win, place, or show. It's a great story. He came from humble beginnings to Hastings Park in Vancouver, and now he's going for the Triple Crown. It's an unbelievable story. It's Hollywood. For The World, I'm Andrea Crossan. Singer Lady Gaga is known for her, shall we say, unique fashion choices, plastic bubbles, raw meat, Kermit the Frog puppets. She seems willing to wear anything, as long as it's eye-popping. Same goes for her shoes. Gaga favors insanely high platform shoes. They're created for her by 26-year-old Japanese designer Noritaka Tatehana. Associated Press reporter Yuri Kageyama met the designer in Tokyo recently and took a close look at the towering shoes. They are sometimes between 10 to 18 inches tall. 
They look like clogs, like platform boots, and there are various colors. Uh, some are covered with uh, Swarovski's crystals, and some have carvings on them. They're very fancy. Tatehana told me that Lady Gaga actually likes them pretty plain and all black. But I've seen her wear the invisible ones. There's ones that are like see-through, so you can see her toes. And she's worn ones that are inspired by um, ballet <laughs> slippers. She's bought quite a number of them. How heavy are they? Because if you just see a picture of them, they kind of look like anvils. How exactly they're made is a secret, so he wouldn't go into details. But they're actually lighter than they look because the platform part is hollow. Mm. Did you get a chance to put them on by any chance? Well, because they cost like $20,000, I I was waiting for him to offer, but he didn't. So I didn't want to break them, so I only touched them. And uh, All right. What do they they feel like? (laughs) They look like sculpture to me more than shoes because they're all handcrafted and custom made and he had them like displayed in his room as well like a slow there sculpture so you went and interviewed Tatehana for a profile you wrote for the AP what kind of guy is he like well I was just really intrigued to see who was this Japanese guy that was behind all these towering shoes but he was very quiet uh, he had long black hair tied up in a ponytail and he had it kind of in a bun and he had glasses, and he was very uh, mature and quiet for a 26-year-old. He was much more subdued than what you would imagine from those designs that are so edgy and stark and very fashionable. And, and Tatahana says his shoes are inspired by ancient geisha footwear. Did ancient geishas wear these tall platform shoes? Well, of course, there's nothing alike because in ancient Japan, they wore something quite different from what Lady Gaga wears. Mm. But one of my first questions was, this reminds me of what Geisha used to wear. And then he said, yeah, that's exactly where I got my inspiration. And then he went through this whole um, story about how he studied traditional Japanese art while he was in college with the top art school in in Japan. And he studied uh, kimono weaving and dyeing. And for his graduation thesis, he made that design that later turned out to be Lady Gaga's shoes, except he made it pink. Mm. He had it all planned that he was going to take something very Japanese but make it into a modern statement. And it was also interesting to me that he sent out email in English, and he had to take English lessons to do that. And he sent out like a hundred, he said. And one of the replies he got was from uh, Lady Gaga's stylist. Yeah, that, that's kind of interesting because apparently, you write, there were only three replies, and one of them was from Lady Gaga's uh, stylist. So I suppose Lady Gaga has been crucial to uh, Tatahana's success. Oh, yeah. I mean, he really hit the jackpot. And, and yet, uh, Yuri, at 15000 to $20,000 per pair, I can't imagine he's selling many of these shoes to people other than Lady Gaga. Well, you don't have to sell that many of those <laughs> shoes, right? I mean... <laughs> 15,000, I mean, we'll get right. you. sell two pairs, yeah. you set for the year. Right. Yuri Kagayama with the AP in Tokyo. Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you. You can see some of those outrageous Lady Gaga shoes at theworld.org. This is PRI. Hi, Marco Werman. Ahead on the world, is New York City about to elect the country's first Dominican congressman? The bells would be ringing in in the Latino population. And I think that it would not only be felt here in, in Washington Heights, but it would be felt back in their native land as well, in Dominican Republic. 
WBRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Charles Rangel has represented Harlem in Congress for more than 40 years. Getting re-elected hasn't been an issue for him in the past. The African-American congressman has typically won with more than 90 percent of the vote. But it might not be so easy this year. The House voted to censure him for ethics violations in 2010, and his New York congressional district was redrawn this year. It's now majority Latino, including the heavily Dominican Washington Heights neighborhood. Now a New York state lawmaker is taking him on in this month's congressional primary, hoping to become the first Dominican-born congressman. The world's Jason Margolis has our story. Adriano Espaillat emigrated from the Dominican Republic at age nine. He worked in his father's New York gas station changing tires. Espaillat went on to college and became a community organizer. In 1996, he became the first Dominican-American elected to the New York state legislature. And now he has a chance to achieve another first for Dominicans in America. How are you, uh, Senator Espaillat, for Congress? Nice to meet you. Thank you. Pleasure. Espaillat's personal history makes for a great story, but he downplayed it when I met him campaigning near a subway stop in the Bronx. I think that the issues are the dominant theme in this in this race. The issues are cut across race, ethnicity, religious, or gender background. Uh, I think that you know if the rent is too high, it's too high for everybody, whether you're black, white, or Latino. Espaillat said the local media are making a big deal of his background to sell papers. I think it's broader than that. I think it's about issues that are impacting the community. Still, I was a little surprised that Espaillat and his campaign staff were steering the conversation away from his Dominican roots. After all, electing the first Dominican-born congressman, that appeals to a lot of people here, says Yvonne Stennett, executive director of the Community League of the Heights. I think the bells would be ringing in in the neighborhood, in the Latino population. And I think that it would not only be felt here in in Washington Heights, but it would be felt back in their native land as well, in Dominican Republic. But she adds, that's only among the politically engaged. There is a degree to which the grassroots folks are not talking about it because they're worrying about how do they put food on the table. I spent some time chatting with people on Washington Heights at local grocery stores and fruit stands. Most knew the name Adriano Espaillat, but they weren't really interested in talking about him or the election. And it's likely that most won't be voting this month. Many Latinos here aren't citizens or registered voters. Those that are often don't vote. So while Latinos may be a majority in this new district, that's not the number that matters, says political scientist Michael Krasner at Queens College. In terms of actual voters, the combination of white votes and African-American votes adds up to 51. Krasner says this may be why Espaillat hasn't been pushing his Dominican background too hard. Krasner adds that Espaillat isn't the great Dominican leader for Washington Heights that some might envision. I don't know what you would point to as a major accomplishment of his, either in terms of legislation or in terms of contributions to his community. I mean, I'm sure that he gets stuff for his district. So, you know, I'm sure he does his job okay, but I don't feel like he's setting the world on fire. 
Espaillat's opponent, Charles Rangel, has set the world on fire for both good and bad. Rangel has been dogged by ethics violations, but he's also been an influential member of Congress for four decades. That's why New York State Assemblyman Guillermo Linares is endorsing Rangel. Linares was the first Dominican-born politician elected to public office in the United States back in 1991. Linares says he has nothing bad to say about his fellow countryman Adriano Espaillat, but right now his community needs Rangel. I just feel very strongly that at this particular moment, what we're facing economically, what we're facing in terms of the Republicans dominating in Washington, the congressman brings the experience. The fact that he has been our champion for so long is clearly the type of representation we need at this point. All right, how you doing, guy? Adriano Espaillat says he's not bothered that his fellow Dominican is backing Rangel. No, it doesn't face me. I have African-Americans that support me. Rangel's got Latinos that support him. I got Puerto Ricans that support me. You know, Jewish members of the community support me. Espaillat says this election is about bringing in a fresh leader. He says Charlie Rangel has had his time. What will he do in two years that he hasn't been able to do in 42 years? And while many Dominicans would celebrate an Espaillat victory, it'd be a different story in Harlem. For many there, it's unimaginable to have the cultural heart of black America not represented by an African-American. Voters in New York's 13th congressional district can decide later this month. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, New York. For more of Jason's election coverage, including stories on the Filipino vote in Las Vegas and why Texas might become a blue state, just go to theworld.org. We're switching continents now for our GeoQuiz. The Brahmaputra is one of Asia's major rivers. The river forms in southern Tibet and flows southwest, passing through the Himalayas. Then it crosses one of India's northeastern states, the one we want you to name in this quiz today. This Indian state is known for its natural beauty, five national parks, and numerous wildlife sanctuaries. And it produces a variety of black tea that's famous around the globe. So can you name this tea-producing Indian state that straddles the Brahmaputra River? We'll reveal the answer and speak with a local reporter about an alarming spider infestation there in just a few minutes. The president of Argentina this week announced that she's converting her personal savings account from U.S. dollars to Argentine pesos. President Cristina Fernandez hopes others will follow her example. Many Argentines prefer to convert their pesos into dollars. That triggers capital flight from the country, complicating government efforts to repay Argentina's foreign debt. The BBC's Vladimir Hernandez is in Buenos Aires. Vladimir, why are U.S. dollars so popular with Argentines in the first place? It's a matter of of the history of the country. Uh, Argentina has suffered so many economic crises around every 10 years or so that people do not feel safe enough to, to, if they get an extra income, if they sell the house, if they have some extra money, they will always tend to put it into dollars because they feel safer that way. Mm. And devaluation and inflation are also huge problems here. So people tend to feel safer with dollars. So how do the dollar accounts then lead to capital flight? Well, because people 
their income in pesos for a local company, any ordinary employee gets a salary, he has some money to save, then he turns that into dollar-based accounts. And or the other option, which is also very popular, he just basically takes it out of the country. Right. And the government has a problem with that. Yeah. And the problem that that's basically it, because since about two years ago, the government has started to pay its foreign debt with foreign reserves. And if they if they allow people to take more and more money to buy dollars and take it out of the country, then they're going to have less reserves to pay. And also when people take their savings out of the country, they pay less tax. So they're also trying to get people to declare all their income and not take it out of the country. I gather that the Argentine government has established some pretty strict rules to prevent dollars from leaving the country. Uh, apparently, if you import something into Argentina, you then have to export an Argentine product as well to kind of balance that dollar flow. Am, am I stating that correctly? Yeah, no, that's correct. But it's in a way, it's still two different things. One thing are the restrictions on the dollars for people, ordinary people in Argentina and businesses. But the other thing for, the, to, for them to maintain their trade balance, they want to maintain a positive trade balance of about $10 billion this year. And the way they're trying to do that is to give licenses to companies who import things. They are asking them to export things as well. So then you have foreign companies like, let's say, Porsche, who to import the parts they need to manufacture the vehicles, they have to export whatever good they think of. So it is it's quite unusual, but it, it is the way it's working that companies like Porsche, like Hyundai, even maybe Ford or General Motors, they end up exporting things like wine, nuts, uh, fruits, vegetables, all sorts of different things not related to their core businesses. And that is for them to be allowed to import the parts of the vehicles, which is their main trade. How are foreign companies kind of responding to that? Because it just seems bizarre that Porsche, in order to do business in Argentina, has to then export Argentine wine. Well, in a way, many companies have ad adapted to this since uh, the last 12 months or so, because in a way, the country has been growing for about three years over, let's say, nine, eight percent. So there, it, it's a big market. It, it, it became an important market in South America. And some companies, some foreign companies do not want to be left out. So they've been adapting to these new rules, especially the car companies, which have been growing at the fastest rate in the economy in the last year or so. Well, I have to confess that we were attracted to this story precisely because the, the latest wrinkle uh, in these rules is that even Madonna, the singer, is being affected by this. Yes. In, in her case, the, the production company who is bringing Madonna to Argentina, they are being asked, as they are importing a service, they're being asked to export a service. So for them to be allowed to bring Madonna to the country and to get the dollars to pay Madonna when she sings here, especially, that's the, the, probably the most important thing, they're talking about exporting Argentine bands to other countries in South America, well-known artists, but it, it's a trade-off they have to make to be able to bring important artists into this country. It is quite unusual. It, it is not the most awful orthodox way of working, but it has seemed to be going on for quite a while yet, and nobody's complaining as much as with the restrictions with the dollars. Mm. Madonna saying, don't cry for me, Argentina. Is uh, she crying about this? Well, we don't clearly know yet at the moment, <laughs> but probably if they get the dollars to pay, I don't think there'll be much crying. The BBC's Vladimir Hernandez in Buenos Aires. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Just the thought of a large biting spider is enough to make some people cringe. But in remote parts of one state in northeast India, it's more than just the thought. The state is Assam, and that's the answer to our geo quiz, by the way. Large, hairy, biting spiders have been turning up there, crawling into huts and biting villagers. Journalist Wasbir Hussein is in the city of Guwahati. That's the capital of Assam. Wasbir, what kind of spiders are we talking about? And have authorities identified them as poisonous? 
Well, I have been talking to ecologists in the area, and they have not yet identified this particular species of spiders, but they believe that this is some kind of tarantula, but they have yet to ascertain as to the exact species. Uh, let me tell you that these spider attacks have been taking place in the remote town of Sadia. This is about 600 kilometers east of Assam's capital city of Gauhati, uh, across one of Asia's largest rivers, that is the Brahmaputra. And it is actually a vast area, sparsely populated, of course, of about 100,000 people, mostly rice farmers. And they have been experiencing this spider attack in the last couple of weeks. A kind of tarantula, possibly. Have you met anyone who's been bitten by one of these creatures? Well, I have been speaking to some of the relatives of the victims who have been bitten by these large spiders, and they're described as hairy creatures. Generally, the victims have been complaining of severe pain after the attacks by the spiders, excruciating pain. And what is uh, significant is that, you know, uh, uh, they have been advised by local, I would say, quack doctors, you know, uh, the, not witch doctors, but quacks, uh, local quack doctors, who, and in view of their suggestions, what they have been doing is they've been doing this grisly practice of cutting off the sides of this particular spider, the place where the spiders are bitten, and uh, causing severe wounds. And basic idea is to drain out the blood. And that, perhaps, is causing m- much more uh, damage to the people who have been actually affected. And, in fact, seven people have been treated by the local hospital in the town of Sadia, as I've said. And I've been speaking to the doctors there, and they said that they have been forced to treat the patients with tetanus injections and antibiotics, primarily to treat the wounds caused by the radio blade, uh, which they have used to drain out the blood. Wow. So it's not just the bites, it's bogus doctors, too, that are complicating this. So uh, how are villagers coping? Uh, Well, uh, villagers are actually uh, totally panic-stricken because they have been talking about seeing spiders, the army of spiders actually attacking, coming out and attacking. So what they're doing is that uh, they have been basically uh, wary of the possible spider attacks in any time in the day or night, and therefore uh, that area doesn't have proper electricity as well. And they have been putting lamps on throughout the night and generally on an extra alert and uh, maintaining some kind of a vigil, you know, in case uh, they are bitten by spiders. In India, how do people generally feel about spiders? Is it just part of life or, you know, is there a fear like, you know, some people I know? There is no fear as such. It's just a part of life. And this is the first instance where there are reports of spiders actually coming up and uh, biting people. In fact, uh, two people have died, but uh, the authorities and the local magistrates, which I've spoken to in the town of Sadia, they said it is difficult to ascertain whether those two people have actually died of spider bites or whether they have been died of secondary infections caused by the people making their own treatments through quacks and cutting off parts of their body to drain out blood. So it's extremely difficult to ascertain whether these two people have actually died of spider bites. Journalist Wazbir Hussein speaking with us from Guwahati. Guwahati is the capital of the state of Assam in India, and Assam is the answer to our geo-quiz today. Great to speak with you. Thank you. Fear of hairy spiders clearly didn't phase our geotexting game winners today. Asma from Corona, California, Nielsen in Dawsonville, Georgia, and Cedric in Las Vegas all came up with the right answer, Assam. To play next time, just text GEOQUIZ, one word, to 69866. GEOQUIZ, one word. By the way, you can flip through the world, literally. Our program is now available through the popular Flipboard app for iPad and iPhone. Listen to our stories and get great web extra content. You can download the app at flipboard.com slash the world. This is PRI. 
The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Climate change is raising the prospect of a world much different from the one we all know today. Australia is already feeling the largely unwelcome effects of climate change. And with more dramatic change all but certain, scientists there have launched a massive decade-long experiment. They're trying to simulate the climate of the future in a real landscape and help the country better prepare for what might lie ahead. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports. It all looks and feels slightly incongruous. Six huge cylindrical steel skeletons, each almost 100 feet tall, rising above a native eucalyptus forest at the foothills of Australia's misty blue mountains. What it is is an environmental time machine on the outskirts of Sydney, where giant fans pump carbon dioxide into a part of the wild Australian bush. We have six of these arrays of pipes designed to emit carbon dioxide in a computer-controlled system so that we can study how this ecosystem responds. David Ellsworth, a New Yorker who now teaches at the University of Western Sydney, is in charge of this unique project. It's called the Eucalyptus Woodland Free Air CO2 Enrichment Project, or UCFACE, and it's meant to simulate high levels of CO2 that the planet could well face in the next half century and predict how vegetation will react to climate change. Most predictions of the impact of rising temperatures and CO2 are based on computer models, historical data or small plots of land. Big outdoor carbon dioxide trials are rare and the university says this is the world's biggest and the only one to use mature woodland. My name is Stephen Wall from the University of Western Sydney. I am the senior engineering officer. What we're going up now is a 22-metre-tall modular scaffolding. It allows us to place instrumentation at different heights in the canopy. So at the end of a fairly arduous climb on top of this scaffold that does wobble a bit, but looking further afield across the site, there are six of these giant rings, three of which pump out carbon dioxide, which of course lies at the heart of this experiment. We're hoping to find out how this ecosystem actually responds to carbon dioxide concentration of the future and whether it will actually store more carbon or not. Professor Ellsworth says that's important because Australia's bush occupies a large part of the country's landmass and is a big part of the government's carbon sequestration strategy. The hope is that the bush will soak up a lot of the extra CO2 the country emits. If native bush is not able to do more than it currently does, then we need to know that pretty urgently, I think. Most of our experiments are aimed at looking sort of in the order of 30 to 50 years ahead based on current predictions. So our CO2 concentrations and our temperature treatments are based around that sort of time frame. Ian Anderson is a director of research at the University of Western Sydney. We also have the experimental facilities to actually look back in time so we can actually take CO2 out of the atmospheres and actually look at how those plants would have responded back in time, I guess to build up a bit of a picture of you know, where they've been, where we are now and where we're going to go to in the future. 
Other projects at the facility are investigating changes in precipitation, as well as the combined responses to higher temperatures and elevated CO2 by enclosing entire trees in large plastic chambers. The taxpayer-funded project is the only one of its kind in the Southern Hemisphere. It took a year to build and will last for a decade. The government says the experiments will transform climate change research in Australia, which emits more greenhouse gas pollution per person than anywhere else in the developed world. For the world, I'm Phil Mercer, Sydney. We close today's program with a tribute to a singer who passed away a few months ago. It comes to us courtesy of Beto Arcos. Today I want to tell you about a singer from uh, Spain, from Barcelona. Her name is Montserrat Figueras. And I first want to play for you this wonderful piece of music from her collection of two CDs of her work called The Voice of Emotion. This is called Canarios. Montserrat Figueras passed away late last November. She left a wonderful legacy of music. She is known for her interpretation of a vast repertoire of medieval, renaissance, and baroque music. Next, I want to play for you in an Italian song called Canzonetta which she sings in this beautiful, very emotive way. I've come to know the work of Montserrat Figueras over the years because of her work with her partner, Jordi Sabal. And I've always found her very profound approach of singing this vocal music in so many different ways. She is trying to emulate the way in which this music must have been sung back in those days. The last piece I want to play for you is this very touching, very moving lullaby from uh, the Berber culture. She sings this in the Berber language from uh, Morocco. And her interpretation of this beautiful lullaby is just so profound. And even though she passed away in late November at the age of 69, she left us with a lot of great music that we continue to enjoy. You can see a video of the late Montserrat Figueras performing and talking about her music. That's at theworld.org. And thanks to reporter Beto Arcos for telling us about her. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, 
I'm Marco Werman on Twitter at Marco Werman and back here tomorrow on the radio. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art, the Freeman Foundation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI, Public Radio International.